you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 92. You can go ahead and be turning there. And what I'd like to do just for a minute is kind of give you a little bit of information about what's been taking place at Mercy Hill as, as our sending church. I think it's helpful just to kind of keep you updated on the things that are taking place. Um, our major hope and dream about Mercy Hill was that it would be a place where we would see men, adult men, come to know the Lord. My wife and I, when we began to pray for Mercy Hill, we prayed that the Lord would save grown men. Um, and one of the joys of that is we have seen in every one of our baptisms so far have all been grown men. Um, we've, had, we've had three baptisms. Lord willing, we'll have a fourth coming this Sunday. Um, but, but really, even more than that, we've seen so many individuals, so many people who claimed Christ yet didn't really have a relationship with him. They were simply the, uh, what we would call the, the nominal Christians, the people who said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but that really didn't impact their life. Um, as you know, um, being a Christian dramatically affects every area of your life. And if it doesn't, that's probably because you don't actually know the Christ of the Scriptures. Um, and so we've seen some incredible things take place. Um, and I would ask you if, you if you would continue to pray for us right now. We're dealing with uh, a, a problem, a, gr a great problem of, of having a pretty rapid growth, um, which means that we are in need of a new space. Um, and so if you could just be praying that the Lord would open those doors. We're in pursuit of that right now. There's a couple of things that we really want to see happen, um, one of which is to start a student ministry, um, which, would, which would fill our Wednesday night services just to see um, Olive Branch High School. That's what we want to do. We want to pick a school and we want to go after it. Um, and so that's our heartbeat. We want to go after Olive Branch High School and see the Lord do incredible things just to be a force for the gospel there. Um, and so please, if you would, just be in prayer for us on that. Um, number two, please continue to pray for uh, me and my wife. Uh, church planting is um, by and far the most rewarding of all areas of ministry, but I will also say that it is incredibly taxing. Um, and, and so if you could just pray for perseverance on our, on our behalf. Um, we're still, some of you know that we were in the process of adoption. We're still pursuing that, and that's just taking a little bit longer than we expected. But Lord willing, he will provide. We rest very comfortably knowing that he will do that. But, um, so those are just a couple of ways you can pray for us. Pray for um, next steps in regard to staff. We're hoping to expand our staff by one person, just to have someone come alongside us, really for the intention of bringing them along while we're planting, finishing up the planting process so that in the coming years, we'll be able to send them out. Um, one of the requirements, by the way, and this is why I love this church so much, one of the requirements to enter into the church planting associate um, job here is that when you plant, you must be a church that plants churches. Um, so we already have planned out about three areas where we want to plant. One is in the Mississippi Delta, one is South Mississippi, and then one is going to be, uh, our, our hope is, is Arlington, Tennessee, as Tennessee begins to expand that way. Um, and so if you could, man, please be in prayer for us. We have lofty things the Lord's laying on our heart. We're excited about each and every one of them, but we cannot do it without the prayers of the saints. Um, and so please, please be in prayer for us as we pursue each of those things. Um, with that said, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, so Psalm 92. Um, we're just going to walk right through this passage. You'll notice, uh, and if you were here while I was, you, you know that I am the worst with notes. And so what I've given you is exactly the notes. There's no blanks to fill in, so I'm not at risk on missing one. Um, and you're not at risk of having your OCD flare up and becoming very frustrated with me. So I'm really doing everything I can to prevent you from being angry with me. Um, so with that, Psalm chapter 92, um, let's read that and then we'll begin to walk through it together. So Psalm chapter 92 says this. 
It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. and the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are even full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, what a privilege it is to come and to um, read through, first and foremost, your word. Lord, we know that your word is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Lord, that it has no mixture of error, that it's everything we need to pursue a life of godliness. It's everything we need to have wisdom unto salvation. And so, Father, as we come this evening, my prayer is that we would um, celebrate that, that we would trust the reading of your word, that we would trust the teaching of your word, Lord, knowing that your word is given to the saints for their specific sanctification, that they might grow in likeness to Christ. And so, Father, I ask, would you accompany this frail man, feeble I am, Lord, fallible I am, Lord, but your word is not, and that is our great comfort. And so, Father, as we come, we trust that your word will accomplish the purpose that you have set out for it. We know that, that it is a promise that you give, and Lord, that it will not return void. It is in the precious name of Christ and through his redeeming blood we pray. Amen. All right, so what we're looking at here, we're just going to go verse by verse. You'll notice that on the side of the notes that I've given you, you'll see verse 1, verse 2, verse 4. Um, so we're just going to walk through these, um, really just, just hitting the high points because we've got a lot. You notice there's 12 points, deep breath. Like I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on each of them, um, which I am prone to do. Uh, so anyway, let's look at the first one. Um, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, O Most High. So you can see that I worked really hard on that point. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Um, one of the first questions of the Westminster Confession of Faith is, um, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What I'd like to talk to you about this morning is the ultimate good of any individual. Um, one of the things that I think we miss in the Christian life, and, and we do it because we, we become so acquainted with it, I'm convinced that familiarity often breeds apathy, um, that with the more familiar we are with something, or perhaps even let's consider the Sunday mornings that we have, because you'll notice in this particular text, at the very beginning it says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath that this would be a song that the people of Israel would gather together and they would sing on the Sabbath day. They would celebrate all the things that God had done and they would sing this song uh, on the Sabbath for the purpose of saying it is good. It is good for us to give thanks. It's good for us to praise. And so one of the things I think it's important for us to remember that each and every time we have the opportunity to sing praises to the Lord, we do so because it is our ultimate good. Please understand the way the saints worship should be the greatest pleasure of each saint's life. 
One of the things that I think we've been robbed of is we have so many things that delight us, so many things that capture our attention and affections here, but primarily because we live in a world, uh, a country in particular, that gives us every single thing we desire. And what we find more frequently than not is those things that have satisfied so many desires ultimately begin to capture our desires. They become the object of our affection. And my friends, if we say that we're followers of Christ, if we say that we love the Most High God, then we should say our ultimate good is to worship Him. Our chief end, the greatest thing that we can do in this life is to worship the Father and enjoy Him. Enjoy him. So if you look at the text here again, it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, O Most High. I would encourage you that each and every time you have the opportunity to gather for worship together, this should be your heartbeat. This should be the affection of your soul, that, that you get the opportunity, the grand opportunity of that, at that, to come and to celebrate with other saints to praise the Most High God. Well, what I'd like to do as we kind of take the next steps forward here is to examine why that is our ultimate good and how we are to worship him. Because what we find more often than not is there are people who would gather on Sunday mornings, they would sing songs, they would sing praises, but they are not to the God of the scriptures. And that's evidenced often by the man who stands behind the pulpit and preaches because he preaches a God that is not found in the Bible. And I'm telling you, my friends, this runs rampant in our society where we have people who claim the name of Christ yet they do not bow to the truth of scripture. Friends, that can't happen. Should we say we love Jesus, should we say we love the God of the Scriptures, then we will worship in line with what He has revealed in the Scriptures. And so when we come this morning, this evening, we say it is good to give thanks to the Lord, then we must ask the question, why? Why is it good to give thanks to the Lord? And why should we praise Him? First and foremost, notice verse 2. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So let's just kind of hit the first point here to declare your steadfast love in the morning. And what I'd like to do for just a minute is provoke perhaps your affections. At Mercy Hill, we say that the preaching of the word is meant to do three things. It's meant to grow you in steadfast love of the Lord. It's meant to grow you in faithfulness or it's meant to grow you in knowledge of God. What I'd like to do for just a minute is hopefully provoke your steadfast love. Can we consider for just a minute the love of God for his people? And let's just take the nation of Israel first and then we'll bring it over into the New Testament and consider the Christian. First, if you would consider that at this particular point, God had delivered and even distinguished between the Egyptian and the Israelites and said, I'm going to execute judgment and wrath against the nation of Egypt and, and at the exact same time, I'm going to deliver my people from slavery. By his mighty hand, he did this. Why? Because he loved the nation that he had chosen in Abraham. In the exact same way, we see as he demonstrates that by his works of bringing them through the Red Sea, and showing not only Egypt that he is actually the true God, that all their false gods would fall to the mighty God of Israel, but simultaneously he revealed the fact that his love for, for Israel is, 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 is empowered by his actual ability to deliver. And what we find here is that the steadfast love of the Lord, first and foremost, is set on his people based upon his own free sovereign choice. And secondly, it is a steadfast love. Consider for a minute how incredibly easy it would have been, and I would argue each and every one of us would have done this, in demonstrating how incredibly faithless Israel was for him to simply say, I'm choosing somebody different. I'm choosing somebody different. Israel, time and time again, directly after being brought through the Red Sea, we find uh, Moses going up and bringing down the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and the entire nation of Israel is dancing around a golden calf. And that's absolute foolishness, isn't it? 
Why is it then that God did not simply abandon his people and say, I'm going to go somewhere else? Because his love is steadfast. It is not subject to change based on the recipient of love. His love is completely and totally based in and of himself. Meaning that when we fail, when we falter, when everything seems to be falling apart around us, his love remains because it is steadfast because he is steadfast. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. And since he is unchangeable, when he sets his affection, when he sets that perfect, enduring love on an object, that object will receive that love eternally. It will not pass away. It will not fade based upon the object of his affections and ability because his love is based completely on himself. This is the best news for the Christian. Can you consider for just a minute your own life? At bare minimum, I can examine my own and see this. That God, has, in his endless faithfulness to me, has offered me nothing but grace. He has lavished on me a grace that is able to save to the uttermost. In his kindness, he is, by his grace, conforming me to the image of Christ. And all the while, I am quick to spit in his face and tell him when he gives an explicit command, no. And yet, his love endures. His love endures. And that's the beauty of the steadfast love of the Lord. It is based completely on himself and not on the recipient. If it was based on the recipient, his love would have vanished long ago. For we are unworthy. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are, if anything, we are corpses in need of someone to act on our behalf. That is the state in which he found us. And should he abandon us, that would be the state to which we would return. It is only in his steadfast love that he gives us life. It is in his steadfast love that he keeps us. And lastly, it is in his steadfast love that he will see us to the end when we will enjoy him forever. It is his steadfast love that we declare, that we worship him for. Continuing on, it says, and your faithfulness by night. And here we see how steadfast love and faithfulness is, is bound together. You realize that in the in the, in the covenant between a husband and a wife, the, the primary motive, the primary uh, covenant that you're making is that you choose, you will love that individual throughout the entirety of your life. That love provokes faithfulness. Should your love begin to falter, then it is very easy for your faithfulness to waver as well. But should the love remain steadfast, then, then faithfulness is not really something that's difficult to come by. And what I'd like to point out, just kind of to reiterate this point, is that love does produce faithfulness. And God choosing to love and set his affection on us thereby brings about faithfulness. So if we just take just this, if we just take the fact that we can have the privilege of declaring the steadfast love that we've experienced, we've experienced and been the recipient of his eternal faithfulness to us, is it not? not an easy response then to say it is good to sing the praises of the Lord because he's worthy of those praises absolutely and only worthy of the eternal praises of those whom he has rescued and redeemed why first and foremost because he loves us dearly and desperately even though we are completely and totally unworthy of it and next because he will perfectly be faithful to every command every promise every um, every great thing that he has declared in his word he will bring to fruition and to completion what a joy it is to praise one who is steadfast in love and is perfectly faithful. And I would argue that the only, the only, if he isn't these things, first of all, he's not worthy of praise. Secondly, we have no hope. If he is not steadfast in love, if he is not faithful without a fault, then we have no true hope. We have no, um, no, no means of reconciliation, but this is exactly who the Scripture reveals him to be. His faithfulness 
actually we see it all the way from Genesis to Revelation that he will bring about the purposes that he set forth. And so we praise him first and foremost for his nature. Thirdly, we give thanks to the Lord for his work. And his work is an expression, by the way, of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Notice verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work and the works of your hands I sing for joy. So I want to take two things in particular. First, I want to point out the fact that the psalmist is making reference to one particular work. He is meditating on, in that first phrase, he's meditating on a single action that the Lord has done. And I would argue for the, for the Christian at bare minimum, whatever this particular psalmist as he was writing this was meditating on, the Christian should meditate on one particular work. What work would that be? The work of the cross. The expression of his steadfast love and his faithfulness is most clearly seen in the cross of Christ. If you, if you long to see God's love for you, if you long to see his faithfulness, then you should look nowhere other than to the cross of Christ because in the cross of Christ you see perfect justice and perfect love meet perfectly. You see God execute justice on sin. You see him crush the wicked. Yet what has actually taken place is Christ has become our substitute. That all of our wickedness, all of our guilt, everything that would cast us away, Christ absorbed in himself. And then he drank the cup of God's wrath perfectly so that we would never experience the suffering that he endured. His justice was satisfied. And not only was his justice satisfied, he provided for all those who were his, the ones who had received his steadfast love and were the, the, the benefactors of his faithfulness. He then perfectly provided a perfect salvation for them. The beauty of the steadfast love and the faithfulness is ultimately that it produces a saving work. One work that the saints that are in Christ should meditate on daily. Friends, I would encourage you that if you do not take a moment each and every day to preach the gospel to yourself, then you are missing out on the Christian life. Consider for a minute how quickly a day goes by without us ever savoring the fact that Christ died for us. A simple phrase. I mean, really, there's, there's not even much difficulty about saying it, but just to consider the fact that we who are completely unworthy of God's steadfast love and His faithfulness, that He not only told us that He would love us in that way, He demonstrated it that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We praise Him for His work, that one in particular work of rescuing and redeeming those whom He loves and the faith and, and those who He is demonstrating His faithfulness to. And friends, I would just like to comfort you perhaps for a moment. If He has given you His steadfast love and His faithfulness and He has seen His Son go to the cross to die in your stead, then my friends, you can rest very comfortably that His steadfast love that sent Christ to the cross will be the exact same steadfast love that will see you home. The love of God knows no bound. It's demonstrated at the cross of Christ. Justice and love meet perfectly. All the while God is both faithful to those whom will have faith in him. Simultaneously he is faithful to his own characteristics and his own nature. God at the cross did not violate a single part of his person. Instead the entirety of, uh, of God's attributes are perfectly displayed there that we might look to the cross and say behold our God. And so we praise him for his work. Next, in the exact same vein, it says that the works of your hands I sing for joy. God is not far. He's not far. The first thing that we should praise the Lord for is certainly the work of redeeming the saints. Secondly, we should praise him for the way that he is ever constantly at work in our life. Far too often, you almost have two camps 
here. You've got one who only considers the work of the cross and never begins to examine how that benefits them each and every day of their life, that God indwells them, that by his spirit he is doing a work in us. And then you have the other who doesn't pay attention to the cross at all, and essentially they've become people who are only seekers of experience. They don't want to rest in the truths of God. Instead, they're seeking some type of an emotional experience. And ultimately what you have is one extreme or the other, and both are robbing themselves of the Christian life. The Christian life is one that meditates on the work of God that accomplished the redemption of the souls of man. Simultaneously, a a, a heart that is longing to see God work in their life each and every day. And when he does, because he does, we praise him for it. Our immediate reaction to each and every moment of our life, knowing that God is working, should be to exhale praise. And should you perhaps for a moment consider, well, I haven't seen God work in my life recently. Friends, you're breathing. You're breathing. Not only is that a demonstration of his faithfulness, because I guarantee you, you've sinned today. And he would be perfectly just to rid the world of your presence in light of that. It is his grace that keeps you breathing. And that's not counting all the little things that we see God do in our lives that often we never pay attention to. I believe it was Piper that said, God will be doing a thousand things in your life and you may only be aware of three. But God is actively working in your life each and every day, bringing about his primary end. That's why we can claim Romans 8, 28, for God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's not a single thing that happens in your life that is not God-ordered. Everything has an intended purpose and an intended end. And the beauty is, the scripture tells us what that end is. First, it is for his glory, which we should all rejoice in, should that be the chief end of man. Secondly, we know that it is to conform us to the image of Christ. This is so important because first, it means that no tragedy, no pain that we endure is meaningless. Instead, it is a means by which God will use to glorify himself and also to conform you to his image. And in that, the saints should always rejoice. So we see him, we praise him because of his nature, we praise him because of his works. And then I would like to point out the distinguishing factor between the fool and those who are in Christ, those who have been redeemed, those who have seen him for who he is, those who have tasted and seen that he is good. First, you'll notice in verse 6 it says this, the stupid man, by the way, I think that's the only time I can find in my Bible that says stupid. Um, I was reading through this psalm and I was like, that's interesting. And I realized I couldn't read it in front of my nephew because um, I get in trouble for using that language. Anyway, that was so far in left field. Um, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. So in the number four, you'll notice the foolish man does not understand these things. And he does not understand these things, not because they're not revealed, but because he himself suppresses them. Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, um, for the, for the, what is it? Goodness gracious. Okay, I'm going to look it up because I can't quote it perfectly. Um, So Romans chapter 1, in in this incredible um, examination essentially of the wicked individual, ultimately we find what he is doing in his daily life. So what he is doing is suppressing the truth by his own unrighteousness. So notice verse 18 of Romans 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I was listening to a debate, I'm, I'm weird like that, and late at night I watch, uh, I watch apologetic debates because that's just who I am. And I'm, I'm listening to this debate take place, and the, and the Christian apologist is making the argument. He says, he, says the, the, he was saying that the, um, the, his opponent knew 
knew that there was a God and knew that he was worthy of praise. Drove his opponent crazy. It's like, how dare you tell me I know that? I'm sitting here arguing the point that I don't know that. He said, but the Bible says you do. The Bible makes it clear that the, un, the unrighteous, the wicked people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness because, friends, if you haven't looked outside lately or you haven't watched creation display the majesty of God as, as Psalm 19 begins to clearly display before us or even Romans 1.20 immediately following this, every single thing in creation screams of a creator. It is by necessity then that the individual who would reject those things begin to suppress them to make it where they don't, it's not, it's not that they don't know them, it's that they don't want to know it. Now, I think this is important for us to note as you begin to have conversations with atheists or individuals who would reject uh, the God of the scriptures or perhaps reject a God altogether. You walking up to them and telling them that they already know these things is probably not going to be the greatest evangelistic technique. But it's still important for you to know that. It's important to know that God has not left men without an excuse. It should motivate our evangelism. There's not a single soul under the sun that is not fully aware that there is a creator, that he is constantly demonstrating who he is. And so when we come to this particular verse in verse 6, in verse 6 it says, The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand. It is making reference to those individuals who God in his infinite grace has painted a tapestry to reveal his design. They reject it and they suppress it. And it is that which makes them the fool. Notice in verse 7 through 9, because this is important, and I think even comfort to the saint. It says that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Has it ever frustrated you, saint, that when you look around and you watch wicked men, everything seems so perfect for them? You watch as they prosper in wealth, their health is good. Their family's intact. Everything seems like it's going well. But friends, I would encourage you to remember that though everything seemed good, we can see very clear a demonstration of what their life actually looks like at each and every funeral. Every time we see someone laid at the front of a church or at a funeral home, you watch as a corpse places is covered in makeup to make it look alive. That's exactly what we find in the individual who rejects the God of the scriptures, who rejects the God of their salvation that would gladly offer them and bring them into the fold. But instead, they reject that. They are a corpse with makeup on. Their doom is inbound. And perhaps that is not the most popular things to communicate, but I find it almost the greatest of frustrations when I look around and I see individuals prosper. And I think if only God would smite them just in the slightest sense, take away their wealth, take away all their prosperity, then they would see their need for him. But friends, this is a demonstration of how they suppress the truth. It is a painful thing to consider, and it is a frustrating thing to consider. But nonetheless, it's who is faithful and he is steadfast in love. It is recognizing the God who is worthy of work, I mean, that, that his work is able to save, and he is constantly working. Instead of recognizing that, they suppress it, and it places them in this camp of fool. And naturally, the individual who rejects the glory of the God clearly displayed here they are doomed to destruction forever. I would remind you, with all of the talk as of late, that hell is not real. There are major leaders of certain Christian factions, if that's what you would like to call them, that would deny its existence altogether. They violate the scriptures in doing so. Hell is a reality. And I would also add in, because God has made it clear that it is the just penalty for those who have rejected him as Lord. 
And we must, if that be the case, be people who are very passionate about making his glory known, not only by demonstrating it as pointing them to the general revelation, but even more so than that, pointing them to the God who is able to save, that they might be rescued from its fire. And so we see the foolish man may prosper here, but they will be dealt with justly. In verse 10, it goes on to say this, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. So first, I'd like to point out to you that in number six on your uh, page, it says those who recognize the work of the Lord uh, are gi- uh, and give thanks are exalted. Um, now, I want to be careful here. I'm not making reference to the fact that you will receive some, uh, that, you will be made lo- that you will be made into a God. There are many, uh, particularly the Mormons would argue that should you honor the Lord here below, you will be made into a God. That's not at all what I'm telling you. That's not at all what's revealed in Scripture, but you will be exalted in the sense that you will, in light of the fact that God has bestowed grace upon you, you will throughout your entirety of your life be made into the image of Christ, ultimately to result in enjoying Him forever in eternity. Friends, there is no greater exaltation than simply sitting in the glory of Christ. That is the eternal reward for the saint. And we must be people who look there. We must be people who are not afraid to say, there is a great thing coming for me. I will be able to gladly spend the entirety of, uh, of eternity in the presence of God that he might express to me the immeasurable greatness of his kindness toward me. That's found in Ephesians chapter 2. We see that so clear. And in the beauty of the gospel, it is not a, a gospel that brings you simply back to a physical or a spiritual life. Instead, it brings you higher and higher. If you know Notice, if you'll read through Ephesians chapter 2, you can see this. You're dead in your trespasses and sin, placing you essentially as low as you can possibly be. But by the end of that paragraph, you have found yourself raised to newness of life and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is what exaltation means for the saint. We, are, we have the grand privilege of enjoying him forever, and so we are exalted in that sense. Lastly, we are anointed. In verse 10, it says this, You have poured over me fresh oil. This had great meaning to the individuals who are here is the idea of God anointing you for a task. But I would argue that in the New Testament we find this even maybe more fully developed in the fact that the Holy Spirit of God comes to indwell the saint, the one who recognizes the works of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord, and the faithfulness of the Lord. They get the privilege of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I'll be honest with you. I think we, this is probably the number one doctrine of, um, of the Holy Spirit that we, that we miss altogether. Because we think the, the most foolish statement ever when Jesus says, it's better that I go, that the paraclete, that the Holy Spirit may come. We, every single one of us would look at Jesus in that moment and say, you're crazy. Wouldn't we? You're telling me that it's better for you to go, to to be in heaven, to mediate my case, and for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell me. You're telling me that's better for me? Wouldn't it be so much easier if you just sat right here and told me what to do every single moment? And the answer is a resounding yes, for Christ is no liar. The beauty of being anointed with oil, this symbolic idea of the Holy Spirit of God anointing us for specific tasks, and not only that, but giving us the life that is so needed to heal us, to regenerate us, to give us an actual spiritual life, that is the benefit, that is the reward for the saint, that we actually have the Holy Spirit of God giving us life and enabling us to do things like kill sin. Now, the reason that we don't experience this is because we don't actually spend a whole bunch of time aiming to kill sin in our life. But friends, I would encourage you that should you desire to see the Holy Spirit's power in your life, aim to kill a sin. And maybe if you'd like to see the distinction, do it, try to do it of your own accord. You will find that sin's power is too strong for you. It will bind you and you will lose. The Spirit of God knows no loss, nor will He ever. 
And should he desire to release you from the bondage of sin, he will do just that. We have, in light of the glory of seeing his steadfast love and his faithfulness and in light of his work and praising him for those things, we have been granted an oil far greater than any that would come from any brush of the field. Instead, it comes from the person of God and is in and of himself the person of God. And so we see that they are anointed. In verse 11, we see the enemies will fall. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time there. Um, but primarily, you see that there is this distinction made. There is an idea that the humble will be exalted and the proud will be cast low. The proud will be cast low. We see this even perhaps more, most clear in the person of Satan. Satan desired to cast himself as high as he possibly could to ascend the throne. And what was immediately done to him? He was cast low. And friends, he will be cast all the lower. He will endure the lake of fire with all those who refuse and reject Christ. He will endure that. He is not the ruler of it, nor will he ever. He is imprisoned by it, and he will suffer that loss. And so we see very clearly the idea of the, the saint being exalted, but then even seeing the, 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 the enemies being cast low. Now verse 12 is where I'd like to take just a brief pause. So let's examine what, what's the end result for the individuals who say it's good to give thanks to the Lord, it's good to celebrate His steadfast love, it's good to celebrate His faithfulness, it's good to look at the work that He's done to rescue and redeem us, it's good to see all of His glory displayed in our life, that He's doing something each and every day. What then is the end result of the individual who does that? Ultimately what I'm asking is what's the end result for the saint? What's the end result for those who've been purchased by the blood of Christ? which by God's grace I pray is each and every one of you here. And so what I'd like to do is give you a bit of encouragement. I'd like to point out to you your end because your end is very, very important. Far too often we, re we, we neglect looking toward our end. We consider our present, we consider our past, but we very rarely consider our future. We say things like, I'm on my way to heaven, but we never examine what that actually is. And not only that, we never examine the future or even the ending of our lives. And the glory of this passage is there are a couple things. First, it says in verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree. I want to point out to you, if you jump back up to verse 7, the psalmist here is um, making a point. It says that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, that flourishing is making reference to here below. That flourishing is making reference to a wealth that is here and now. But ultimately, it is a flourishing that will fade is a flourishing that will be burnt up with fire. What you find in verse 12 is no such flourishing. It is something better. It says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I would point out to you and even point you back to probably like four years ago at this point to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is one of the most glorious psalms in all of the book. It starts with this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. That is exactly what the psalmist is making reference to here. He is making reference to a flourishing that is not temporary, but eternal. Its leaf does not wither. The beauty of flourishing in righteousness, the beauty of flourishing in Christ is that those who flourish in Christ will flourish with Christ for all eternity. It is not as though it will fade away. The tree that is fueled by the living water that comes from the Holy Spirit of God will not fade. It will be a glorious tree that will bear fruit not only here below but also as we look into eternity. 
And so the righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. In verse 13, it says this, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They are given a place in the court of God. What a reward. What an incredible reward that we are not cast out, that we are not in the outer court, but we are invited to enjoy his presence forevermore. This is, the, this, is the, this is what is, in essence, what heaven is. Don't misunderstand. Heaven is not the fact that you get to exist eternally. Heaven is the fact that you get to live eternally. Live is only valuable if it is in the presence of Christ. It is only precious if it is meaning that we get to enjoy him forevermore. And so I would encourage you as you consider this, just consider your end here is, is to flourish not only temporarily but eternally and not only to flourish but to flourish in the courts of our God that we get to enjoy him. Now, verse 14 and 15, I love this. This is my favorite part of this whole passage. And it's, the whole thing's good, but, but I just, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm sitting in my study looking through this and I just celebrated this because um, I have one particular member of our church who demonstrates this perfectly. And the whole time I'm reading it, all I can do is think about them. I'm not going to give you their name because they would be embarrassed. But look at verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. This is the single most joyous and beautiful thing of the Christian life. There is not a single moment in your entire expanse, regardless how feeble and frail you may be, regardless if you have come to the end of your life and you find yourself on your deathbed, it is by God's grace that you will continue to flourish and bear fruit. There is not a single member of the kingdom of God that is not of use to their king. I cherish this so much because as I look forward into the future and I'm starting to age very slightly, I know I'm 27, everybody's judging me right now, but I'm thinking forward that there will never be a moment because I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, I'm given that type of power and authority only through His finished work that throughout the entirety of my life He grants me the privilege of bearing fruit. What a grand privilege it is that throughout every moment, every breath that you breathe, is a means by which God will glorify himself. It is an incredible privilege that we get to do that. So it goes on to say, they still bear fruit in old age. They are even full of sap and green. Now, I am no farmer, but I am certain that these are things that are demonstrated not in old plants, but in young plants. That the, the incredible joy of being in the faith is that is there's never a moment where you are so far away, so feeble, whatever it may be, from bearing good fruit just as those who are young in the faith are. One of the joys of being a pastor so young is I get to watch as saints who are much older than me finish their race. And I have watched many do that. And there's nothing more encouraging. There's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more joyous than watching a saint finish well. Far too many saints don't. But I would encourage you this, that those who sing the praises of the Lord in their youth genuinely will finish the race singing them. That's the beauty of the gospel is that you will, by the Holy Spirit's power, persevere. It's only through his power that we're able. It's, it's, the, it's the power that he demonstrated in raising us into spiritual life. It's that exact same power that will see us finish well. And it gives the youth boldness and courage that we might not fall away. And for those of you who are a bit older in the faith, praise the Lord that he has kept you. It is clear evidence that you are in Christ. And I would encourage you that if you would, for the youth that are still growing up and maturing in the faith, finish well that we may rejoice in your life.
that we might celebrate that and, and gladly on that day where we celebrate your life, that we will look to it and say, what a glorious thing that a saint has come home, that they have received that eternal reward to flourish forever in the kingdom of their God. Lastly, verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So what is the end that we want to see from the saint, both young and old? You see in the very beginning, we praise the Lord for his works. We praise the Lord for his steadfast love. And lastly, the same thing is on the lips of the saint as they grow older. There's no unrighteousness in him. He is worthy of my praise. Friends, should you know the God of steadfast love, of faithfulness, who has demonstrated his perfect work in rescuing you and ransoming you from your doom, from your death that you, that you rightly deserved, then you will gladly sing his praise on the last day. And as you enter into heaven, you will be familiar with the song that they will be singing. I consider for a moment, 1 Peter, that when the that there is a song that has rung out throughout eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels have been singing that. But friends, know that when the saints sing the song of salvation, the angels must be silent for they do not know it. But we will gladly sing. Praise be to the one who's able to rescue and redeem. They will be silent and we will sing loudly. And by God's grace, it will not be a song that is new to us because we should have been singing it all the while.